0: Welcome to another episode of Campus Chats. I'm your host, Edgar Wang, and this is where we interview talented Princeton individuals, both off and on campus, to figure out best practices to where they got today and actionable tips. Today on the show, we have Derek Lido, who is an entrepreneurship professor at Princeton. We're gonna go over his entrepreneurial journey and how he reached where he is today, some leadership lessons he's learned along the way, and some useful tips for anyone looking to lead or become an entrepreneur. Hope you enjoy. All right, so today we have uh, Professor Lido as our guest. And Professor Lido was CEO of International Rectifier, which was a semiconductor company. And then afterward, he went on to found iSupply, a leading market research firm on multiple technologies. Mm -hmm. And now he's here teaching entrepreneurship at Princeton, uh, specifically entrepreneur leadership and creativity, innovation, design, both great class so going back to the beginning, when you were in college, did you know what you wanted to become? And from there, how did you arrive at where you are today?
1: So when I was here at Princeton a long time ago, over 40 years ago, um, I I was an engineering physics major. So I was doing both electrical engineering and physics. And I really was destined to be a professor. Uh-huh. Um, I graduated here in three years because i couldn't help myself from taking all the classes possible Uh, and i went to stanford to get my phd uh, which uh, i was very fortunate because as a hertz fellow i could again take as many classes as i wanted and i also had the money to go work for any professor Uh, it was my choice who i worked for not their choice on whether or not i could be there research assistant and I was again fortunate that I stumbled upon my thesis topic uh, like the first week I was at school and um, and it was a great thesis topic lots of interest lots of publications and so definitely I could have uh, I, w- I was set up to be uh, academic professor um, but I chose um, not to go that route. Um, It was a big decision, but I felt that I wanted to have more impact in the real world and that academia was a little bit too in the clouds for Mm -hmm. me at that point in time. So I went and um, uh, started work in the laser field, but uh, soon got recruited into the semiconductor industry and I spent... uh, 23 years in the semiconductor industry that were more or less the golden age of semiconductors. So I had great opportunities to do all sorts of things uh, and rise to the top ranks and uh, yeah, it, was, it was an incredible set of experiences. I was very fortunate I have been very fortunate in um, ha- you know the opportunities I've had in my life.
0: So it sounds like when you were at Princeton and Stanford, you wanted to become a professor, but you stayed in the semiconductor industry for quite a while yeah. and then went on to found a startup. So what kept you in industry for so long before you know, returning back to being a professor now?
1: Uh, because th- there were so many fun, interesting things to do in the semiconductor industry, which when I joined was fairly small. and By the time I left, it, was, it, it had changed how the world operates. So, um, so I got to do all these fun things, and I, I I'm good at coming up with uh, new ideas, and so I was always given the opportunity to try my new ideas to put them into uh, you know operation and in the real world, and so it was a continual um, sequence of more and more impactful, more and more interesting projects on a bigger scale, and uh, you know, there's there's nothing more fun than doing things like that. And, and it sort of culminated in uh, starting a, a company from scratch, uh, which is probably one of the most challenging uh, problems that, that uh, you can tackle, and building it into a, a world leader, and then um, Eventually, the what's now the world's largest uh, information company came to us and said they needed to buy us, you know. That, uh, uh, so okay, mm-hmm. uh, and, uh, and just as the, um, the sale of my company was announced, Princeton basically right after that called me up and said, hey, they want to expand the entrepreneurship program would I come here and uh, create some new classes so so that sounded like a really interesting project also uh-huh. to come here and to teach and uh, uh, to teach about the real world you know something that I had uh, have been very fortunate to be able to do all sorts of cool
0: things in mm-hmm. and you mentioned in your time in industry you really like coming with new ideas implementing them and growing them at more ambitious scale. So, was there any idea of yours that was a particular favorite that you got to execute?
1: Um, well, let's see. So, in, in, in the semiconductor industry, um, one of the f- fun things I did was um, figure out that some new technology could change the way motor drives were designed. You know, and motors are everywhere, right? And motors consume. As I recall, about 30% of all the electricity. Uh, so m- motors are a big deal in the world. We're, you know, we don't talk about them here, in Princeton, very much. But uh, out in the real world, particularly in the electronics world, they're a big deal. Mm-hmm. And um, and they're not necessarily very efficient. And so there was some new technology that allowed us. Uh, using semiconductors to control uh, pretty high voltages with integrated circuits. And the integrated circuits that run, you know, your smartphone or your PC are very low voltage devices. So, so it's, you know, it's like five volts, okay? And we had developed a process where we could develop integrated circuits that could control 1200 volts. So you could plug it into any industrial outlet in any factory anywhere in the world. This was cool, but as with all new technologies, you sort of scratch your head and say, well, what what should we do with it? And I put, and I sort of said, wow, you know, motors, that's the place to do, to do it, you know, it'll have the greatest impact on the world. And, you know, they're all old fashioned and and the like. And um, basically motors up to that time say the motor in your refrigerator. Mm-hmm. It's on, off, on, off, that's it, on or off. And with, with this technology, you can control the motor and sort of uh, vary its speed and vary its torque and do, you know, I mean, really be in total control over that motor. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that saves enormous amounts of energy, gives, improves performance, it's all good stuff. And so I put together a, a team uh, to investigate how we should do this and then I, we brought out new products and ultimately all the designs of motors uh, and motor drives ever since have, have been different. So it might be a little hard to relate to that because motors are not part of you know, the Princeton mm-hmm. curriculum, but um, that was really cool and really fun and uh-huh. uh, had a big impact on, you know, the world and the company, and you know, couldn't couldn't want a more fun project. Uh-huh.
0: So I think uh, what what's really relatable is this idea of thinking through technological innovation and mm-hmm. how it can create a, a new product. So at your time in industry, how did you stay abreast of like technological innovation and critically think through new products that that could drive?
1: Yeah, well, it, it, that's a, a great question, uh, and it's a challenging thing to do. Um, I did it in uh, in two different ways. Um, I was talking to customers all the time. I basically would allocate um, a week of my time every month. So a quarter of my time was being with customers and talking and listening to what their problems were and trying to figure out if we could solve them. And then I'd go back, and I'd go into our engineering department. And we had engineers all over the world, and we had R&D departments of several different flavors and like. So, you know, it wouldn't always be, uh, you know, talking to every engineer, but it would be like, you know, I'd spend a couple of days, you know, on the phone or, or in front of them saying, I heard this that there was this problem, you know? How could we solve that? You know, what could we do? And In that brainstorming, the engineers, uh, you know, might bring me up to date on the latest technology, or we would often speculate on, could we get technology there, you know? How could we solve this? And so, it was, and indeed, many ideas on new products and and new R&D developments, uh, not just the product, but, processes and the like. that came out of those meetings and that kept me right in the center of, of what was possible and what was happening and uh, also lots of fun.
0: Gotcha. So it sounds like it was really important to talk to customers and then have these brainstorming, brainstorming. sessions with uh, and engineers. Yeah.
1: And, 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 and so because I had such an understanding of the perspective of the customer, it grounded the conversations with the engineers and scientists Mm -hmm. and ultimately could result in things that impacted the world. So it wasn't sort of just open-ended blue sky, Mm -hmm. it resulted in all sorts of great new technologies that the engineers wouldn't have thought about but it started with the customer Mm -hmm. as as the 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 framework
0: and then in terms of taking those insights to make decisions was there ever a particular decision that kept you awake at night
1: well in terms of the developments not every development worked Mm -hmm. okay and so i would stay up at uh, literally stay up at night wondering, hey, is this time to shut down this effort and put the resources in other places? That was always a tough decision because hey, the projects always had a reason a good reason for 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 being there. Uh, we always learned things and you know engineers, you know, hated it when would hate it if if we when we shut down their project. Um, so I, you know, I agonized and, and worried about that. What I tried to do was to, you know, say, okay, well, you know, let's not work on that anymore. But hey, there's this really interesting, you know, potentially impactful other project mm-hmm. that we could start up. Let's go put our efforts on that instead. But um, but those are always very difficult uh, discussions to have, and you, you it keeps you up thinking about it. Mm-hmm.
0: And as a leader, you sort of have to make these impactful decisions. Uh, Was there any particular lesson that was difficult to learn and internalize? Because I think a lot of new leaders think they understand the principles, but there's a difference between understanding and knowing. So how did you, was there a particular lesson that was very difficult to internalize for you?
1: Yeah. um, Yes. Absolutely. And um, so, you know, you can read about what it takes to be a leader, but just like you can read about what it is to play tennis, right? How to play tennis. Uh, but you get on the court for the first time after having read the book, you know, uh, and it doesn't feel anything like reading a book, playing huh. tennis. Okay. The same thing is true about, you know, leadership skills. We can talk about them in class, but, um, until you actually practice them with real people and see you know, what, what it feels like you, you, you don't have a un, real understanding of, of what it takes. Um, and this was a big challenge for me. So after my PhD, right, it was a good PhD, lots of, uh, you know, uh, everybody, um, you know, was impressed with it so I could, you know, there were lots of job opportunities okay and then i so i accepted one and i was working uh developing new products um and i thought hey you know i i, I have P- i'm the one with the phd i'm the one with the good phd from a good school everybody should listen to me and nobody listened to me mm-hmm. <laughs> and it was like what's going on here I, you know look at the facts Um, and I didn't have a clue about how to deal with uh, new people and how to get people rallied around, uh, you know, my ideas or anybody else's ideas. Uh, matter of fact, because I thought I knew everything, I came off as arrogant and, uh, you know, who wants, you know, to help that punk kid, you know? Mm. Uh, we know what we're doing, and we've been around, and uh, so we'll just ignore them. And uh, and that sort of, you know, hit me pretty hard. And I started scratching my head and, and looking around and realizing, hey, you know, some of the people that were accomplishing uh, a lot weren't people that I necessarily felt were were great potential PhDs. Right? So I, I was looking at it from the lens of who, who, who could be, you know, as smart as I was in physics. Mm-hmm. And, um, and all these people that, you know, weren't going to be great physicists were actually getting good things done. And so that set me on a path of, of, of reading books, asking people's, Advice inputs ultimately being able to uh, as I got more uh, response as as this worked out and I got more responsibility and it, and I didn't get more responsibility until this started working, but as I got more responsibility I could bring in people with uh, that I admired uh, from outside you know my companies and uh, and they would you know share their uh, Ideas and techniques and so I could grow and it became I mean this became a real focus for me Mm -hmm. Uh, and it wasn't just for me then I put training programs to share it with other people in the country companies and and ultimately the companies became much much stronger because we we were really good at this stuff
0: Mm -hmm. And on this topic of improvement, so now you've written a book on startup leadership and you've thought through the framework for uh, beginning leaders to use and even experienced ones to think through the problems critically. So how were you able to come to a point where you could systematically think through leadership and create these frameworks? And a lot of it seems to be on this process of improvement you had. So could you speak a little more about that?
1: Well, um, I kept notes. Mm -hmm. So um, they're not here in my office. but. in my home office, uh, th- there are, you know, notes and notebooks and notebooks and notebooks filled with uh, things that I was learning, uh, basically as a form of a journal. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it's not journaling about everything that's impacting my life, but these were the things that I was interested in, and so I was taking notes. And I was writing things and uh, writing things to myself, trying to work it, work it out, how to explain something or there's something here to understand and, uh, uh, and the like and jour- journaling's a great way to have a conversation with yourself about improvement that you ultimately challenge yourself to go out and maybe learn something new or try something new or and um, speculate on how you could have done it better or or the like and so i did a lot of that And that served as a a great, you know, um, uh, beacon. Not not that it was a straight path, Mm -hmm. but uh, this this self-discuss, you know, continual self-discussion, you know, pointed out where the the shifts in focus and and attention should go. And, uh, and you know, it worked well, hey, 40 years of, of uh, those notes and uh, those experiences have gone into the book and, and the class.
0: Mm-hmm. And you, you have this, it seems like, very thoughtful process of self-reflection to mm-hmm. improve. For other leaders that mm-hmm. don't reflect as much, what do you see as a common problem that derails these people's careers as leaders?
1: Yeah. And so now I study uh, leaders and uh, and the like. And um, there, there's a couple of things that can derail them. One is, um, there are a lot of potential leaders that have a lot to offer. But they don't feel they have a lot to learn. They already think they're good, okay? And they may ha- you know, be good in the context that got them to where they are. They might've been good at sports and they were the captain of the team and the team did really well. they go and they join a a company or they try to start a company and uh, and it stalls out or it falls apart um, because they tried doing the leadership that worked on the team and you know a different type of leadership was necessary and and they wouldn't seek out uh, help in and solving their problems, they just kept doing what they thought was right till the end. And um, so, o- being open to understanding that there's uh, that you got a lot to learn wherever you are. I still have a you know a lot to learn. Is um, is an essential uh, thing. A variation on that is uh this widespread belief that um, uh, leaders are born Mm -hmm. and as as we discuss in class it has nothing to do with with traits that you're born with these are skills you develop Um, but if you believe that it's all about traits One, you believe that you're a special person because you have whatever trait that made you captain of the football team or whatever. And you don't need to learn because you you were born with it. Uh, And it also screws things up in whom these erstwhile leaders choose to hire or work with. Uh, Because again, they look for Um, they tend to get confused by people that are extroverts you know hey they got charisma Um, whereas they're oblivious to the skill sets that are needed and therefore they build up teams that might be very um, uh, you know effective at uh, putting out pitches because they're all extroverts, but mm-hmm. they're very ineffective at actually designing processes or getting projects, you know, accomplished or mm-hmm. the things, the other skills, the real skills that uh, define whether or not people look up to a leader for being, helping them being successful.
0: Mm-hmm. And jumping to a topic that I think a lot of Princeton students would be interested in, especially the entrepreneurial community. So for iSupply, what was your impetus to start this new company, and what were some of the challenges you had to overcome in the beginning, and how did you overcome oh, them?
1: Yeah. Uh, so I started iSupply um, when I was in my uh, mid 40s. And I had already, I'd been a, I been was a CEO of a major semi, global semiconductor company thousands of people's working for me, very successful, you know, make, you know, very profitable leader in our field. And, um, and I, I had got to thinking, well, one is that um, I saw some problems happening in, in um, the, the industry as a whole and how it was organized that I uh, felt deeply, very strongly, was going to cause problems. And I talked to my fellow CEOs about it, and they, you know, would sort of shake their head, but they said, "I don't know what we can do about it." And I felt that uh, having <coughs> whole new types of information would give us the visibility to steer clear of these problems. And um, and I kept thinking about it; I couldn't stop thinking about it. And so eventually, I put my money where my mouth was. And I retired as a CEO of a super successful company, making lots of money and lots of accolades, and um, started this company from scratch to get this information uh, that nobody could get their hands on and uh, provide it so that the industry uh, wouldn't um, have a train wreck. Well, I started iSupply in 1999, and um, the dot com bubble, you know, happened at, you know right this time, and mm-hmm. it burst at the end of t- 2000. And our c- few, so we were established with a few customers, and our few customers um, dodged the dot com bubble bursting bullet because of Mm -hmm. our information. So our information helped immensely but we only had three customers so the whole industry, you know, still went into the tanks Um, so it was a good call but not done early enough. And uh, indeed um, you know (coughs) the the time you know uh, Doing I supply, it was um, uh, you know the right thing to do, but it was a very difficult time to do it in. Mm-hmm. Um, the dot the dot com was followed by nine eleven, and you know the startup world ground to a halt for the year after that. Um, there was still remaining turmoil from the dot com bubble after. Uh, things got, restarted after 9-11, just when things start get getting going right in the industry, we have the layman's bro- Brother collapse, and, uh, so we're, we're back, you know, uh, to where we were, you know, as an industry in the 90s, mm-hmm. so it was very challenging, far more challenging than anybody would have ever, uh, developed a scenario for how are we going to survive this. Um, but we did, you know, the, the inf- information was valuable. We were right on that. We were able to, we were smart on how to get this, create this information and find this information. Um, and so we did ultimately succeed. It just took a lot longer and, and quite a bit more money, you know, to survive all these shock, continual shocks, <laughs> mostly from the environment.
0: And in this process of navigating all of these obstacles, was there ever a person that had like tremendous impact on you as a leader or a mentor maybe? And how did this person impact your life?
1: Well, um, so, so I've had, you know, several mentors. Um, you know, I, uh, my grandfather and father were very wise people um uh and my father was a successful entrepreneur and although we didn't necessarily have the same entrepreneurial style so um but nonetheless you know i, I, I definitely could learn from that i think i've learned um more from some of these w- wise people that i sought out um as um, you know Great example. So there was um, one person in particular that he taught, I mean, his profession was teaching leadership classes. Mm-hmm. And, um, I, you know, I was probably five, six years into my career at that point, and I get to take the class, and, you know, the class starts talking about some of the things that we talked about in Class House. Mm-hmm. This is skills, and uh, how it's all helping pe- people around you be successful is what you know, defines leadership and the like. And, um, and, and that person had, had learned it from you know, the, the head of the training firm, who learned it from some books that they read that you know, are classics, and, and you know, just being open to learning from teachers that were more experienced. And, and there were quite a few. You know that taught me project skills and process management skills. Holy Moses, process management skills! Boy, those were essential.
0: So we're nearing the end of the interview, and this is when we ask Princeton-specific questions. So, from your position now, is there any advice you would offer to Princeton students that want to go into entrepreneurship after graduation?
1: Well, um, take as many of these classes. Uh, that we offer here at Princeton is possible. Uh, they're great classes, um, and they're all very pertinent. And they teach a different perspective about um, entrepreneurship. and And it's important to realize that all aspiring entrepreneurs have a hell of a lot to learn, and take this opportunity to learn it. The second thing I would advise is your time here at Princeton is making um, is an opportunity to make contact with other people that could at some time down the road help. Uh, these are all very capable people that you're going to class with or professors that you're taking classes with. And, and um, don't, I mean, look, look at this as building up your uh, network of people and uh, I came back and encouraged people that I had known to come work for me and help me at iSupply and the like, and um, and those were, you know, proved to be enormous competitive advantages, and I had kept, you know, in mild contact with these people before, and, um, and so, you know, they took my call when I called, and they knew mm-hmm. what I was up to, and, uh, and uh, they listened to the pitch to get them to. Drop what they were doing and come mm-hmm. home to It Made a you know made huge difference. So don't uh, I mean please take good use of the opportunities that you're offered here. Not just in the classes, but among the people that you you're know, sitting next to in class or taking the classes from.
0: Mm-hmm. And last question: What's been your favorite moment teaching at Princeton, or one of your favorite moments?
1: Um, so, both the classes have a summary paper that, um, that students write, you know, to summarize what they've learned, you know, from the whole semester. And, hey, reading, reading a lot of papers, you know, puts a little strain on your eyes. Uh, you know, I have to get up and walk around every, <laughs> every two or three papers. But when, mm-hmm. when you see that the students get it, Okay, and, and it's and they talk about uh, how this is changing their outlook or what they're doing or their you know their their ambitions or how they um, how they've already used it to accommodate some problems that they had that uh, they didn't never thought they could solve. Those are those are highs, mm-hmm. you know. That's what you do it for, and then again when you get the notes from students that have graduated, you know. But I get lots of notes from students that have graduated that are that tell me, you know, hey, this really, you know, helped launch my my, my startup. You know, helped me find you know the right partner, um, helped me solve this problem inspired me to do something that I never thought I could do before those notes those are also awesome. that's
0: the reason to do it gotcha all right thank you so much professor little for and joining us on the real show. real pleasure thanks for having me that's it for this episode hopefully there are some actionable takeaways for anyone looking to improve their skills as a leader tune in again next time thanks for listening